I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. We're moving into an interesting section that seems surprising coming from the story of Elijah. And of course, if you know Elijah's story, you can't help but know about his time under the juniper bush. And so we're trusting that as we look at this today, you'll find some blessings that will encourage you in your daily walk and in the strivings we have as believers as well. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. And we'll read down to verse 10. 1 Kings 19, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he executed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself, when a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. <clears throat> so he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. From the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Let us bow before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, I thank you that we can turn to the Word of God and knowing that it is authored by you. Father, there are many in this world who would want us to think that this is a collection of fairy tales, that these are collections of stories that were passed down verbally for centuries. And finally, somebody, once they learned how to write, penned these words on paper. And so somehow through the, the changes of time and through copies after copies after copies, we have the story that has arrived to us that isn't specifically the way you may have intended it. Father, I thank you that as we look to the Word of God, there is much more certainty of what we read. One of the very simple explanations or illustrations of your, your great protection of the Word of God is that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Putting these things down on paper for us that we might be nurtured and admonished. And Father, what we see in its unvarnished truth helps us realize that if somebody is trying to make Elijah look good, this would not be the way to look at him. Help us to see, Father, this isn't about him. Help us to see it's about you and the graciousness that you bestow and display to your servants when we fail you. The graciousness that you bestow to show us that you're a big God who is generous and loving and keeps your covenants and loves and displays mercy when we do not deserve. Father, guide us, I pray, as we study the Word. May we rejoice in what we find. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Our text of scripture is uh, one of those ones that everybody seems to know. You know, Elijah, this great man of God, this great servant of God who had been victoriously used to be able to defeat the prophets of Baal. And God used his words in the prayer and God turns around and drops fire from heaven, licks up that whole offering, lets the people realize that he is God. And there's Elijah standing for God, the Lord before whom I stand. And yet Elijah, as we read in the book of James, was not only effectual and fervent in his prayer, but he also was tempted like we are. He is a human being with similar passions, with similar problems and foibles, all those things that rest upon us when we fail God too. And you know, you look at this book and you read this story, and I think what happens in our day is a lot of people are tuned so much into psychology, we try to figure out if this is what depression looks like. Elijah was depressed. And so what can we learn about depression here? I've got to tell you, our forefathers, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, if we were walking around saying, I wonder if I'm depressed, would be laughing at us, wouldn't they? Our great-grandparents, I wonder how depressed we are feeling. Are you depressed? You know, I think you're depressed. And we walk around with this baggage. You know, you can't expect from me, you know, after all, I'm depressed. I'm not sure exactly how we use this thing, but I know that psychology has made a business out of it helping people with their depression. And then they end up turning around and, of course, uh, medicating people so they can't feel anything. And so there's a lot of things said in the name of Christ that are hurtful because they can't feel with a conscience that they may have let God down. And it becomes this cycle of destruction. Now, there are times when medication is appropriate. There are times when you, that people do get depressed. Often it's because of behaviors that get into, you get into a rut and you have to find a way back out of it. And so, yes, psychology has talked a lot about it, and rightly so, because we're walking around saying we're depressed. But the problem is, when we go to the Word of God, are we supposed to look at Elijah and say, you know, if he'd have had a certain pill, he'd have been okay. Or is there something more to it here with Elijah? I really believe there's something more to it here. Maybe depression is what we call the reality of defeat. Maybe that's what we should be seeing here. The defeated prophet. And I do think that's what we see. The defeated prophet. It's defeat and it's also choices he has made that we're going to find. Now, you know, it's, it's a fascinating passage. And, I, and as I studied this and looked at this, you don't have a lot that explains the thinking that he went through as he made this decision that we find back in the first few verses. We're going to be looking today at the defeated prophet in verses 1 through 4. Then we'll see the merciful God in verses 5 through 7. And then, of course, we find the refreshed man beginning at verse 7 through verse 9. There's a refreshment that God brings. Defeated prophet, defeated man, the merciful God. You just can't avoid this. This is really not about Elijah as much as we'd like to think of it is, as because we're looking at the human story, it really is about a big God here, even in the midst of a prophet who's defeated. And why did he get defeated? We don't know completely. We just have these little indications. And I, I love what we shared with you two weeks ago. You see verse 3, and when he saw that, there is something going on with Elijah, as he has been victorious. And you know, it's interesting. We have heard him many times say, as the Lord God lives, before whom I stand. Guess what? 
We don't hear that here. Something has happened that he doesn't say before whom I stand. Elijah is known as a man of prayer. He is going to pray even in here. And, you know, his prayers are effectual. They are fervent. He did pray what he meant. And so we can't say that's depression talking. That's the problem with the way our society is going. You know, it's depression saying, Lord, kill me. He didn't really mean that. Oh, I, I think he did. I think he did mean that. I think he fully meant that because that's where he was heading. It's going into the wilderness. There's some really interesting things to observe as we look at uh, the story of Elijah. But what did he see? What he saw was God's victory of bringing this fire down from on high. It was an indisputable miracle. It was something that those people saw that they have accounted for us. We've got to trust what they saw. There was no other explanation. There was no other possible explanation but that God did something amazing and all those people saw it. The Lord Jehovah, he is God. That's what was their conclusion. But the problem was it didn't reach to the tippy top. It didn't make it to the king and the queen. Now the king might have been a little bit uh, in awe of the fact that God had done this, and so he was, he was held back from destroying Elijah or stopping Elijah from wiping out these prophets. He was a little concerned about the people, but he still was concerned about number one. Go, Elijah, or go, Ahab, go and eat. And so he did. He went, went up and ate. When the rain was coming, you better get going because the rain's coming. And so he did. He got going. But he did not call Elijah into the chariot. He had Elijah run before him as if he was some servile messenger. And Elijah arrives uh, in Jezreel, where Jezebel is. Uh, you know, the rain is coming and it's pouring down. We have a soaked prophet at this point, don't we? A soaked prophet. Now, of course, uh, yesterday morning, some of you woke up and we had frosty ground and your shoes, get, sneakers got a little bit soaked. And you know what it is to feel cold and a little wet and, you know, your fingers don't work quite right and feel a little bit stiff. And, you know, cold is not an enjoyable thing. Um, and so here we have this soaked prophet. A downpour has come. He's coming to Jezreel. He has a barely enough time to take his rain slicker off, it seems. And word comes to him from the palace the Jezebel is out to get him. Whether this is all bluster, we don't know. She was certainly capable of everything she said here. So let the gods do to me and more also. In other words, this is an oath. I'm taking an oath. I'm going to put you out of your life just like you did with those, those prophets of mine. I'm going to destroy you. Now, Elijah has stood before God. Elijah has stood before Ahab. Elijah has stood before, stood before 100, 400 prophets of Baal. Elijah stood, stood before the people. Why would one woman and a message coming to him in his rain-soaked garment have caused him to change his mind? I don't know. God doesn't tell us why. It is interesting that God would certainly, God could certainly have changed things around here. He could have had his servants say something to him. Elijah, you just had a victory. Why are you running now? There's no explanation of this. What we're left to understand is that there was a choice made. There was a choice made. When we look at this text, we go from a man who has faith to a man who demonstrates fear. He chose that. Faith is the way we're supposed to choose. Fear is the way we mostly are when we face spiritual challenges. Faith to fear. Exchange faith 
for fear. He exchanged his post of duty, which was there in Jezreel. God had a post of duty for him. He exchanged it for his own choice. I'm going to go this way. I'm going to get out of Dodge. I'm going to leave. I'm going to run. He exchanged the post of duty for his own choice. You know, believers, we do this kind of stuff too, don't we? We exchange fear for uh, faith for fear. We exchange the post of duty for something that's our choice. But what else did he do? He chose to put aside biblical leadership for private regrouping. There was a time leadership was needed. He chose not to be the leader. He chose not to be the one there. He chose to go back for some regrouping, some R&R, if you want to call it, but it was certainly to get out of that location of Jezebel. He chose to not confront evil. Instead, he decided to hide from evil and put himself in God's hands. You know, Jezebel was going to kill him. So he turns around and says, Lord, you do it. Not afraid of dying. That's not apparently the case. He was defeated. He chose to put aside intercession for release. Wanted to be relieved of his responsibilities. Relieved and released from this call that God had given to him. Now, the bigger picture, Israel will suffer for it. I don't know what would have been different. God certainly knew that Elijah was going to be behaving this way. He, does, he gives us this account because it's designed to teach us something. The book in 1 Corinthians uh, 10 tells us these things are written for our nurture and our admonition. We learn Elijah is not God, but Elijah was in a very special way used of God. And so there are lessons for us because we're human beings like him. We can, because we've been through exchanging faith for fear, exchanging leadership for quiet, our own decision of going from the post of duty to our own decision of where we'd like to be for regrouping. We make all those decisions, and so Elijah has too. So, you know what? We can be effectual and fervent in prayer like Elijah was. There are reasons why these accounts are given, but Israel's repentance is incomplete, and Elijah saw that. He saw Ahab only about himself. He saw Jezebel wanting to destroy him, and he feels like he's the only one left. Well, God... I'm not going to stand around for that. And he makes a decision to run. And so when he saw that in verse 3, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba. Now, Beersheba was something like 90 miles away. He went a long distance down through the southern kingdom of Judah, right down into the, to the bordering the desert, the end basically of civilization at that point in time. Now, Beersheba was still in Judah. Now he's out of Israel, the northern kingdom, but he's not out of harm's reach. As a matter of fact, it was we, if you went through the rest of the book of 1 Kings and learned further looking at the relationship between Judah and Israel, you would find that a child of Ahab's marries the king Jehoshaphat. Later on, when Jehoshaphat and Ahab come together to form an alliance in defense against an enemy, uh, Jehoshaphat's statement is that we're like you, we're, we're one. So he was not safe. He was still in the reach of the enemy. And what we find here about him is this soaked prophet running, and off he goes in a moment's notice, heading south into Jehoshaphat's land. As he heads south, he leaves his servant. <clears throat> None of this makes sense, does it? It doesn't compute. Why would Elijah do this? Verse um, um, Three, he saw that, he rose, ran for his life, went to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he alone, verse four, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. 
He goes into the desert place, the place where really there's no food to be found. There's going to be no body. I wonder if he went there because he remembered Cherith. I wonder if he went there because God put him somewhere. But it was by divine appointment before. Now he's going into the wilderness. He says, I'm going to go here. This is where I am going to go. And he sits down under the shadow, the wispy branches of a broom tree, the juniper. Um, the old King James calls it a juniper. Here it says broom. You know, you can just get this idea of a, of a plant that's just high enough to give you a little bit of shade in the wilderness place. He sits down and he begins to pray. He's still a man of prayer. He sits down and says, now, oh, first he says, it is enough. I have had it. I am through. No more. There's no more running. There's no more Jezebel to worry about. There's nobody to observe. He's saying, Lord, I'm putting myself in your hands. I have had it. I am done. I am through. It is over. It is finished. Now I'm ready to die. Take my life. Some think that that is the word of a depressed man. No, it's the word of a defeated man. And I do believe it's the word of someone who thought about what he was saying. This is not just an excuse or words that just roll easily off the tongue. I believe he literally was asking God to kill him. Which makes it even more poignant to read what God does. But Lord, you know, Je well then we say, well wait a minute. Why are you running from Jezebel? She'll do it for you. Why do you put yourself in God's hand? Why in the wilderness? I think there's a number of things that go into this. The defeat, the death of the, the, uh, the prophets of Baal, where they were taken to the river, there's no hallowed ground. There's nowhere that was going to become something special. They're put to death to clear evil from the land. Jezebel is going to approach his life the same way. Doesn't want God defeated. Does not want that to happen. So he comes and he says, Lord, you do it. In this desert place, no witnesses. I am through. I don't know if we've ever come to that same kind of a conclusion in our life and in our world, but this is serious stuff. It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, there's no real ex explanation of what that phrase, no better than my father's, means. It may be there were some godly people who were hurting before him, his parents, his grandparents, and they couldn't do anything either. Now you say, well, wait a minute, Elijah. Weren't you the one who stood there before the people and you heard them all chant and say, Jehovah, he is God. It's an incomplete victory, yes. I imagine he's also been thinking, you know, the further I go away from where I'm supposed to be, this post of duty, what use is there for it? You know, there have been godly men who have prayed similar things. Moses did. You know, why am I encumbering the ground? When we become defeated, we say, why? The earth is too burdened to even keep me here. Then maybe we can start talking about depression. But the reality is defeat brings us to the place of saying, I'm just, I'm a bother. I don't belong here. It wasn't just Moses that said those words. Jonah said those words. It's similar terminology where you come to the end of defeat, something that defeats you and you say, I've got no place here. And he says, I'm not even as good as my father's. I've got no, there's no value here to this. My life is done. It's over. I think it's interesting that 
with the concept in mind of where he was going, the way God handles him. But before we get there, one quick thought. Most of this doesn't make any sense to us. You know, Elijah has been so close to God, and God has led him day by day. Um, he's been in faith, obeying, and serving. And now we come to this and say, this is just not Elijah. What happened? That's what leads to the psychological evaluation. I think there's a lesson for us. Kids, you know how it works when you get a new math book. And you're starting to work in that math book. And there are these problems that are given to you. And those math problems are hard at first. You don't know how things are going to end, but you know there's a, a plan. There's, a, there's a, an example that you go through and you practice through the example. Then you're supposed to take that example and practice it through with the problems that they increase. And yet, if you continue to use the example the way it's designed, you come up with an answer that's supposed to resemble the answer that they are looking for. It's supposed to be the truth. Now, as long as you catch the concept, you come to the answer. The problem is that most of us like to do math our own way, don't we? When you get your own way, you come up with an answer. But it isn't always the right answer. Now, it's amazing if you come up with the right answer with the wrong way. It doesn't work real well, but sometimes, surprise of all surprises, pretty sure Nathan did that to us a few times, came up with the answer and we scratched it and said, how did you get that? Where did that come? Well, because I do it this way. Well, but that's not the example in the book. Well, but it's the right answer. See, what we do in a Christian life is the same thing. God says, here's a problem. I'm going to tell you how you're supposed to work with the problem. Here's the example. The Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect example. In faith, he did these things. Godly men, in faith, following that example, come up with the right answer. Now, the right answer is different for each equation, but it's all, there's always a right answer. But you approach life and remove faith away from life, trusting God with his example. You're going to come up with the wrong answer, even though you think you arrived at one that works. What's interesting is that truth and faith are always tied to consistency, harmony, and they will be dependable outcomes. You live your life based upon the truth of the word, which faith is taking God at his word, believing what God says. You take the word, apply it to your life in fidelity to what its intended purpose was, and you live in that consistency, you will come up with a consistent answer. But the moment you walk away from faith, Christians, you're no different than the lost world. You'll come up with an answer that looks good to you. I mean, everything made perfect sense with what Elijah was doing from a world's point of view. Jezebel's going to get you. She's the queen. You better get out of there. Okay, I'm going to get out of here. I get into the place where I think I'm safe. It's not the place where I went before. I'm going south. Oh, wait a minute. I can't stop here. I've got to keep going. The further he goes from civilization, and he's doing it of his own choice, there aren't going to be ravens there bringing him food. There's not going to be the widow there bringing him food. It makes no sense biblically. It makes perfect sense as far as it goes with the world's way of thinking. Take faith away. Take truth away of God's word. You come up with inconsistency, disharmony, everything that doesn't make sense. You just are unpredictable because you've taken away the grounding foundation of the word. That's what Elijah has done. I think another really interesting lesson for us is this. As we look at Elijah and we observe what he does and we think of him as being a giant in the faith, probably more than us, Certainly he had answers to prayer different than ours. But guess what? You remove the direct leading of the Lord and he resembles you and I when we don't listen to the Spirit and to the Word of God. 
How quickly do we go to seed, to fall apart and resemble the world when we let go of our faith, we let go of our trust, and we let go of trusting him to lead us, we let go of his direction. It's just like that. If you think you're a spiritual man one day and the next day you live for yourself, you become disharmonious with what your belief is. You will sin. You fail. That equation falls apart. You come up with an answer, but it's not the right one because you haven't followed the example. In reality, we all stand like Elijah's in the sense that if we exchange faith for fear, exchange post of duty for what we would prefer, something that makes sense to us, exchange these things that God calls us, leadership when it's required of us, for solitude when we want to go there. You're going to end up, it happens quickly because we turn away from the Lord. That's what it is. Now, the Holy Spirit for us is a tremendous boon and blessing. He speaks to our conscience. He challenges us. He won't let us forget the word. So we have no excuse like Elijah. Elijah lived in the days before the Holy Spirit indwelt human beings and believers. Uh, that, that's a different day. But it is a testimony to us that apart from God's work, you and I would be just like the lost world. Maybe a nice guy. Maybe somebody that everybody can look up to. Maybe a good person. But anything good comes from the Lord. Anything eternal comes from Him. That's it. And without Him, we've got nothing. It's that simple. Elijah is a testament to that. Here he is, saying, kill me. Putting himself at the hand of the Lord. So I don't think it's clinical depression. I believe it's defeat. And I believe each one of us can learn lessons when believers get defeated. Where I want to take you next is this uh, account of how God handles him. And this is where it becomes a stark lesson. If it really is true <clears throat> that Elijah, the man of prayer, is praying what he means, Lord, take me. And there he is under the juniper tree, the broom tree. What would you expect God to do if he was a man like you or me? You know what, Elijah? You think you're special? I'll find someone else. I've got 7,000 more to throw at Jezebel. You think you're special? It's better for you to come home. Isn't that where we would go? Okay, Elijah, I'll answer your prayer, and you'll know it's from me. But that's not what God does. Look at the merciful God. Verse 5, then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, God gave him sleep. Sleep is a wonderful thing. The older I get and the more I wake up in the middle of the night and those sorts of things that happen to all of us, the more I really think a good night's sleep is a wonderful commodity. When you get to sleep, isn't it great? You wake up refreshed. You can face the day. Now, if you're a leaper, you're like this. If you're a creeper getting up in the morning and your eyes are filled with whatever that stuff is and, and somebody who's really happy really drives you crazy, I can't, I can't help you. I, I don't understand you. I can't help you. <laughs> but isn't it wonderful when you get a really good night's sleep and you start a brand new day and there you are first thing in the morning and, and you're awake because you slept well. Do you understand that's a blessing just like your food is? When was the last time you said to the Lord, thank you for a good night's sleep? We need sleep just like you need food. It doesn't take long. With Brian doing his ranger school thing, and I know his mom has wrestled with this thing, hearing, you know, two hours, what was it, two, uh, two or three hours of sleep in the first five days or whatever it was. It was a nutty thing. Well, you know what that does to you. You start seeing things. You're sleeping walking. 
you walk into walls or bump into people or you miss the path, whatever it is you're doing. I just, you're not supposed to be able to think straight. Sleep is a blessing. God lets Elijah pray and God lets Elijah sleep. Now, I don't know if he was still soaked or started to dry out in the wilderness. Who knows, but he slept under that tree and the Lord let him sleep and we need to be thankful for sleep. He says next, as he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him. How amazing is this? Now, if you're Elijah and you have just prayed, Lord, kill me. And you sleep and what awakens you is an angel. What should go through your mind? This is how it ends? Isn't that what would be the normal thing? I wonder if that's what going, is going through his mind. You look at Elijah. He has said, Lord, kill me. Okay, an angel, the, an angel, how does he know? I don't know how an angel looks. But he is touched by this angel and awakened. And he doesn't say, stand up. You're going to die. Prepare. It's the end. Your prayer has been answered. It's not an avenging angel, so to speak. What we find instead is this. Arise and eat. That's what he hears. He doesn't have an answer yet as to what God's doing. God nudges him through the angel and says, arise and eat. Listen to what God is doing here. God could have sent ravens because he's fed him that way before. Could have sent a widow. He could have picked up someone and taken them to the wilderness laden with plenty of food. God could have done any one of those things, but that's not how God, in his mercy, acted and interacted with, with Elijah. God sent an angel. When God sends angels in Scripture, there are some really poignant things about angels. Angels go to, re, to release um, uh, from Sodom and Gomorrah a lot. They come to protect him and carry him out. It's not where people could go. Angels, an angel appeared and closed the mouths of the lions. There was going to be nobody else there. It was an angel that went where nobody could go so that Daniel could live through the night. Angels are the ones that took Lazarus to Abraham's bosom. It seems like God uses angels where no one else can go. And yet he uses them in a very precious and special way with those he loves. We don't know, nor are we supposed to be concentrating on angels. They're ministering spirits, ministering to the saints. They minister to you. I don't understand what that means. Someday we will know. But God uses and employs these angels to do things. Do what? Well, let's look what this angel is forced, in obedience to God's commands, to do for Elijah. Six, then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. <clears throat> so he ate and drank and lay down again. Can you picture an angel taking bread dough and kneading it and baking it and making it for Elijah, a being greater than us because we have become subservient to them because of the sin of Adam, comes and makes a meal for this errant prophet who has exchanged his position of duty for his own choice. He has exchanged his life of faith for a life of fear. He's exchanged his purpose and his task, his leadership, for that time of getting away. And yet God sends an angel to make bread for him. Wow. Any lessons there? 
saints. Something reminds us of Romans chapter 12, where the call of believers in, in humility to serve one another. None of us deserves anybody else's kindness. None of us deserves the loving care. But what an illustration for us. Something so simple as baking bread. You know, you think about the disciples in the book of John chapter 21 after our Lord Jesus Christ had watched them run from him and forsake him and Peter among them being the one who had cursed the Lord Jesus Christ and brought down curses upon himself by his own words, is what he said. And yet, as they're out there fishing, the Lord by the seashore is cooking some fish, calls them over for breakfast. Your sovereign Lord illustrates his work for us by showing us that he washed the disciples' feet. Believers, how humbled we ought to be that God in his majesty sends his best to minister in simple ways for his own. And this angel was sent to make bread and make sure there was water. Just simply say, arise and eat. And what's Elijah do? Gets up, eats, and falls back asleep. There's no conversation. He's a defeated prophet still. The food didn't fix him. God's going to have to do that. And this verse continues on. So he rose and ate and drank a second time and went on the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, Mount Sinai. You know, there are so many wonderful lessons is what we see here. First of all, I want to remind you of that idea of the life that we're supposed to live in faith. We're called to live by the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. You follow a life of faith, the answer at the end is going to be the right answer. It's the way it works in Scripture, applying Scripture to our behavior. You put aside scripture and truth, we become inconsistent, we become someone who's incongruous with what we're called to be, we are a failure. We will not get the right answer. It's incumbent upon us to stick with the truth. I think it's also interesting to notice in this text, if we can apply it this way, that God is always better than our fears. God is always better than our fears. Look at Elijah. What did he fear? Jezebel. What did he do? Ran away. But God's bigger than that. And he's always better than our fears. What do you fear today? What have been some fears that have been those things that haunt you in the middle of the night? What are the fears that come upon you and bring a cold sweat upon you? What are some of the fears that have caused you to close your mouth for the sake of Jesus Christ? What are those fears? Remember, the God is always better than our fears. I think it's also important for us to see this. This story is proof that believers are in relationship with God. There is no false God. There are no competing gods. There is Satan who would like to be. But God exists. He is alive and real. He is the one who created you and made you. He's the one who gave you the word. He's the one who gave you life. And believers, you are in a relationship with him. Elijah ran. He was putting aside the relationship. The Lord God before whom I stand. You don't hear those words. Instead, his last prayer, so to speak, his last will and testament, Lord, take my life. I'm not better than my father's. I have had it. But because he's in a relationship with a covenant-keeping, loyal, trustworthy, dependable, loving God, he couldn't avoid God's mercy. God's mercy is going to be poured out upon him. So the story is proof that we believers are in a relationship with a loving 
loyal Lord. And we should never forget that. I think it's also true that though angels are ministering spirits, yet they also do need bread and provide water and nudge a prophet from time to time. Believers, we ought to be the ones too who don't think more highly than ourselves than we ought to think, but instead in love serve one another. And I think it's a tremendous lesson for us. God teaches us that. We sharpen one another, encourage one another. There's that identity with the Lord who has a covenant relationship, so therefore we have one with those he loves too. What a tremendous passage of Scripture. Do not look at this text through the paradigm of depression. It's defeat. Are you defeated? Don't run from your place of duty. Don't substitute your faith with fear. Don't be the one who says, as Elijah seemed to say here, Lord, I've decided it's over. He decides that. Remember, he's bigger and better than our fears. Let's take a few moments and bow and speak to the Lord about what we've learned today. And I'm trusting the Holy Spirit will apply the word to your heart. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful that we find in the Word of God the unvarnished recounting of the events and the facts. And though you don't tell us everything, you tell us enough to give us an insight into you and your greatness and your majesty and, and your marvels. Lord, I pray that you'll teach us to be faithful. Teach us to be consistent. Teach us to own the call you've given to us, that position, place of duty, Father, help us to identify what you would have us do, and may we not fear the faces of the enemy. May we not fear um, what, they, what man can do to us. But may we live in holy trembling and fear of our almighty Father, who yet loves us with an everlasting love, an abiding love. Teach us, Father, therefore, to learn to serve. Teach us, therefore, Father, to learn to love you with a, with a big heart consistently and obey you even though we might fear some of the costs. May we know you're bigger than our fears. In Jesus' name, amen.